The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. Hello, everybody. Thanks for tuning in and joining me today. And if you're a yoga lover, you're definitely going to want to stick around for the next hour. I'm going to have an amazing conversation here. And as always, I've got the phone lines open. If you'd like to join us for a question or comment, 816-251-3555. Just doing it live here in San Diego. So I don't know if I've ever mentioned this before. Here's kind of a, a fun fact about me. Um, I love yoga. I've been a yoga practitioner for many years. And when I I was living in Austin, Texas, back in 2000, I was introduced to the practice of Ashtanga yoga. Now, before this, I had only done Hatha yoga at gyms in the past and kind of trying to practice on my own. And so this practice to me was new and challenging. And I thought, okay, I can really do this. This is what the real yogis do. You know, the people that have the perfect bodies and muscular and, and they can do all this stuff. So I started practicing. I was going through a lot of change and transition at that time. I had moved away from my home state of Florida for the first time. So I was really homesick and trying to get used to a new place. And so I found this practice really comforting and the high that I would get after a 90 minute hell class, I would call it because I'd never done a class like that before. It was just amazing. So as I was getting into the practice, I learned the opening invocation chant And even though I really didn't know what it meant at the time, you know, I felt like there was an intention when I first started to practice after I said that. So I looked up the chant and it's in Sanskrit and I read that it meant, I bow to the lotus feet of the gurus, the awakening happiness of one's own self revealed, beyond better, acting like the jungle physician, pacifying delusion, the poison of samsara. So I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, what is wow. that? I mean, <laughs> it didn't really make sense. You know, so, but I memorized the invocation. I said it before every practice. And, you know, I looked it up. That was the, uh, the explanation. And I found out it came from the yoga sutras that were written more than 2,500 years ago by the sage Patanjali. So I continued to practice Ashtanga after I moved to California, where I am now. I'm in San Diego. And it's only been recently this year that I've, I've kind of, backed off the Ashtanga practice because I was looking for something a little less strenuous. I was just kind of experimenting, but I was feeling guilty that I wasn't practicing anymore. Um, But anyway, so we're going to, we're going to dive into Ashtanga. That's why a little background on me and and my yoga practice to lead into the book that we're going to be talking about today, Embodying the Yoga Sutra by Ranji Roy and David Charlton. So this book came across my desk and I was interested just with, with my experience in Ashtanga and the practice that I've been doing. And I really didn't know anything about the Yoga Sutras and the sage Patanjali who wrote the text that Ashtanga Yoga is based on, the eight limb path towards spiritual fulfillment. So I've been spending some time reading the book and it's really fascinating. It's really kind of ignited my interest again in the history of yoga. So I'm excited to have the authors here today. Ranju Roy and David Charlton are joining me today. In 2004, they founded Sadhana Mala 
an organization that specializes in teacher training, study courses, and retreats. And you can find them online at sadhnamalayogatraining.com. And they're joining me now on Skype uh, from the UK. So welcome, guys. I'm so glad you could join me. Very nice to be here, uh -huh. Diane. Thank you. Hi. Hi. So this is Ranju and David. Yep. I'm here, Are you there? Too. Okay, <laughs> I just wanted to make sure I got you both. So you're both joining me in the UK tonight, right? Yes. Yep. 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 We're actually in different parts of the UK right now, but uh, yeah. we're not together. But but yep, we're both here. And where are you joining me from, Raju? I am down in the southwest, um, place called Somerset, which is yeah, down in the southwest. And David, are you in London? Uh, no, I'm in Great Malvern. I'm also in the west of England, near the Welsh border, uh, quite close to Cheltenham and Birmingham. Well, I really appreciate you guys getting on Skype with me. Uh, it's like nine o'clock there um, at night. Right. So I'm glad right. that you yeah. could uh, join me, you know, here in San Diego to talk about the book. So I'm, I'm, re I am really enjoying the book. I'm loving it. I'm about, I'm, I'm almost finished. I'm about three quarters of the way through here, so I have a lot of questions for you on this. Um, but I first I wanted to get a little history on you guys, and I was hoping you could tell me how you guys came together as teachers. Sure. Well, Dave, Dave and I were um, both uh, very young, curious students who turned up at a, a yoga retreat without knowing each other uh, on, on the same yoga retreat in, uh, I think, 1987 or 86, 87, something like that. And um, we kind of found ourselves working in this with a particular teacher in a particular tradition um, and had been going to classes and had been done, gone to India and, and, and studied on various workshops and retreats together for a long time. We both knew each other, you know, as as some as, as quite good friends, but um, we hadn't we hadn't kind of made any plans to work together. And then in um, two thousand and three, I had just turned forty, and I decided I was going to try and take a year off from my job as an arts and family therapist in the NHS. I was working in the mental health services, and I decided to take a year off. Uh, doing a kind of a, a year's unpaid sabbatical to see if I could work as a yoga teacher. And I got into a conversation with Dave and Dave said he was going to take a year off at the same time, just completely coincidentally, which was a, just a very sort of a serendipitous thing to happen. And um, we kind of thought we'd try out doing some doing some retreats together and doing some workshops together. And, and that was that was 15 years ago. So we could, we just continue to work together from, since then. And somewhat wow. curiously, many years before that, we, we'd actually, we didn't realise this at the time, but we actually went to the same school when we were about 12 and 13. Uh, Ranjit's a year above me for a, for a year or so, and we must have met each other and seen each other, but uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we don't remember each other, but it seems like our paths were somewhat destined to cross, even from an early age. That's great. It yeah, it sounds like it was definitely... It was, yeah. <laughs> it was destiny for sure. It was definitely meant to be that you guys could come together and, and teach together and then write this book. And I mean, this book is so rich and I can tell you put so much 
research and into this, I mean, how long did it take to put this together, the process? Well, we originally came up with the idea that we wanted to write a book about eight or nine years ago. And we rather naively had the view that we could probably knock it out in a month or two. Uh, <laughs> that that was a, that was a little bit unrealistic uh, with hindsight. It kind of drifted around for a few years and not really very much happened. And in the end, we decided, well, we've got to do something to bring this to fruition. So we actually set up a, a Kickstarter project to crowdfund the book. And um, again, we 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 thought we'd have it done within 12 months, but um, actually it took another three years from that point. So it's been quite a long time in, in preparation and uh, the birthing pains have been somewhat difficult but i think we've got there in the end and uh, we're we're pretty pleased actually the way it's come out in the end well i want to c congratulate you both on this because i found it just to be so readable i mean even though there's there's a lot of sanskrit in the book but it's more in kind of an you know ex explanatory way i guess you know it just enhances the book to have that in it and I found it really easy to understand. And you've gotten some great reviews on this, too. So you should really be happy on on your accomplishment with this. Thank you. Yes, it was really important for us to use the Sanskrit. And we tried to um, walk the line between making it both quite a, you know, a rigorous book and a, a fairly academic book in some senses, but also a book which was going to be uh, relatively easy to understand and and go through for for somebody with with an interest but without necessarily much knowledge and we felt it was very important to use the sanskrit um because the yoga sutra the the text w on which this book is based um is obviously it's a sanskrit text so all of the the sutras are written in this ancient language of sanskrit and when you every time you translate any word from one language to another, it's very difficult not to put some kind of spin on it or not to, to, to not, um, you, you know, you can't translate it purely cleanly. So what we wanted to do was in using the original terms that Patanjali was using and in, in working with the, the words that he was using, when we translated them into English, we wanted to be as transparent as possible to say how we have evolved our understanding of this particular sutra or this particular teaching in the way we have. And that quite often involves deconstructing the actual Sanskrit word itself because the Sanskrit words have a kind of a, a root, which is um, a, a, a kind of a root meaning. So we've kind of said this is the root meaning and this is how we've evolved this understanding of this word and this is therefore how we've evolved this understanding of this sutra. And by making our own process as transparent as possible, we wanted to be um, as clear as possible that our writing and our understanding of the Yoga Sutras is both um, applicable in a modern context but also is faithful to the the traditional understanding. Well, what I thought was so amazing as I was reading it, it really brought the practice that I've, I've been doing for so long 
to life. I mean, for me, it gave me a much deeper understanding because honestly, like I, I'm sure like a lot of people, I came to yoga originally, you know, I, I wanted a, a practice more of a physical thing and I didn't realize all of the other benefits that came with it. You know, that was kind of the added bonus. And what I got from the book was just such a rich, deep understanding of this beautiful system. And when you think about it, it just blows my mind that this is so ancient, like 2,500 years old. It's kind of hard to wrap your head around this this wisdom that, that they had access to. It, it's just incredible. And I love the way you lay it out. Now, in the book, you chose to focus on 17 key sutras. And there are really like 195 or 196. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So there are 195 kind of sutras it. and they're div divided into four different chapters. So it's about sort of 50, 50 sutras in each chapter. And so this must have been a lot of work to distill the 17 that you have in the book from, from all of that text. I mean, I can only imagine that was... It, it is, it, and it was it was a challenge to decide what to include and what to leave out. But um, in practice, there is the the, the yoga is quite a technical text, and in our teaching, there are clearly some sutras that stand out as being much more practical. So, yes, we, it was a little tricky to decide on the final set, but actually, there there are a number of candidates which. To be honest, are much more accessible and relevant, mm -hmm. to, and that's what we tried to do. We tried to pick those that that kind of really stand out, I think, mm -hmm. and um, help you navigate your way through the the practice of yoga in a very meaningful way. You know, they've got an impact on the way that you do things. They're not mm -hmm. just abstract, as it were. Right, and would you uh, agree with that too, Ranju? Like you, yeah, when you I go mean, for in, working in on it. In the Yoga Sutras, there are f these four chapters, and really the majority of uh, very relevant and easily accessible um, teaching is in chapters one and chapter two. Chapter three and chapter four are much more complex and um, a little bit more obscure in a way. Chapter one and chapter two have a lot of very readily um, available, uh, very read very accessible um, teachings in them, particularly chapter two, which is called Sadhana Pada. And Sadhana Pada is the chapter for people who are confused and starting off on their yoga journey. So lots and lots of chapter two is very relevant for most people who are coming to yoga, because most people who come to yoga are coming to yoga with some level of um, confusion or, or um discomfort or something within their lives hence they they want to come to yoga you know they want to do something about their lives whether it's for physical or for psychological reasons and chapter two is the chapter which addresses these people and so a lot of the sutras that we have looked at in this book come from chapter two and some of them also come from chapter one which chapter one kind of outlines the yoga path what the, it defines what yoga is and what are the um what are the goals of yoga and some of the interruptions of how we some of the interruptions along the, the journey of yoga are described in chapter one. So chapter one and chapter two were the main big hitting chapters for the average practitioner. And we, so we, the 17 sutras that we've chosen have primarily been from those two chapters. 
Well, I think the book, I mean, for me, I wish I would have read this before I even started practicing. You know, I think it, it would have it would have really made true. things uh, you, you know, a lot one easier. Of the that, one of the things we wanted to do with this book is to uh, give give it um, sufficient uh, sufficient spectrum of applicability so that it could be read at different levels. You could read it as a beginner. You can read it much further down the path as well. And I think as you read it and reread it, hopefully more things um, become apparent from from what we've written. So you can you can just go. Well, we hope that you can go back to it and reread it and notice new ways of understanding. Well, it's brought me to some new ways of understanding, even just in kind of the first go round. And I'm and I definitely want to keep it on my shelf as a reference, you know, so that I can go back and revisit it again. So I think this is a great book for people, like you said, who are entering a, into a yoga practice and they're just starting out or people like me who have been doing it for a little while and maybe need a little bit more inspiration or understanding, which is what I got from it. So I'm really enjoying it. Now I could, I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about Patanjali himself, the, the sage that wrote the sutras. I used to, I worked with an author named Dr. Wayne Dyer for many years, and he was a big fan of Patanjali, and he could quote him all, you know, at the drop of the hat, which he would do. <laughs> so there was a lot of wisdom that can be drawn from Patanjali, but when I started Googling and looking around, there isn't really, I guess, a lot that's known about him. Is that right? I mean, what do you know about Patanjali? Um, I mean, that, that, that's true, in fact. I, I mean, the, the very name has a kind of uh, semi-divine association. And I, I know our Indian teacher, uh, Deskachar, would point out that really Patanjali, he felt, was an honorific name. It's the kind of name that you would give to somebody, um, you know, to, to honour them, basically. So we don't really know anything about Patanjali at all, uh, or indeed whether it was a single person or whether, uh, in fact, the the Yoga Sutra was compiled and developed over a long time. Now, legend has it that Patanjali uh, composed three texts. One of those texts was on Ayurveda, the Indian system of, of medicine and, and healthcare. And really, you could see that as really addressing the, the needs of the body. He also wrote a, a text allegedly on grammar. So grammar was considered very important in the Indian tradition to ensure we have a clear and precise communication. So that was kind of addressing the needs of, of speech, I guess, speech and communication. And then you have the Yoga Sutra, which really um, focuses on the nature of mind. I think many people think of yoga as being primarily about their, their body, but actually when you look at the content of the Yoga Sutra, its emphasis is really psychological. So um, the Yoga Sutra was seen as Patanjali's contribution to address our psychological needs, basically. Uh, beyond that, there isn't really a great deal that we can say with any certainty at all about the, the origins of Patanjali. Some, some Western scholars actually think that the, the text was written by more than one person for example some some posit that the fourth chapter was written later and by somebody else but i think we the our the teachings that we received were such that um patanjali was a it's kind of a mythical a mythical person 
a mythical sage who delivered these teachings and we kind of leave it at, at the level of uh we leave it at the level of that for um i don't know we don't need to go any, we don't need to know much more than that he, he was around probably 1600 to 2000 years ago or somebody who had written these teachings was around 1600 to 2000 years ago and the teachings are very cogent and coherent and very much in line with uh, with the indian tradition so it's not as if they were um saying something radically different from other teachings but what patanjali did was to codify and clarify a disparate group of teachings into one very coherent single text and i think that was one of the geniuses of the yoga sutra that it it kind of condenses a lot of teaching very very cogently i mean it's quite it really is genius Mm. Mm. i'm sorry go ahead were you going to say something yeah i think it's quite common in indian tradition to um approach the teachings through a kind of root or heart text and it's not to say that the one wouldn't study other things or you wouldn't actually approach uh, other teachings but it's quite common to have a kind of foundation stone uh, through which you kind of context everything else and certainly within this tradition which we've been taught in the yoga sutra is is the foundation text is the is the bedrock and everything else is kind of built and hangs off of it, if you like. And everything else is kind of understood through through the lens of the Yoga Sutra. So for us, it's it's been it's been the primary primary source. Well, it's such an interesting text, and as I was reading it, and and I appreciate your explanation because it, as I was reading it, I was thinking kind of what you were saying, where you're not really sure if Patanjali was a person, one person, or mm. if it was maybe an honorary title, kind of like how I feel the Bible was written, that I don't yeah. believe that it was written by a person or, you know, I mean, it was many people, it's poetry, it's stories, it's mm. all of these things. And mm. it, it's just amazing to me, the the shared wisdom that you find in the Yoga Sutras, that you find it in a lot of other sacred texts, you know, mm. it, and it just kind of makes me feel that we are we are really more connected than we want to think. You know, when when this mm. wisdom is out there, and and somebody or some group of people, maybe over a period of time, compiled all of this together, I, I just think it's really amazing. So it's I wanted to ask you, tapping into a spiritual tradition. Yes, uh, it's yes, tapping into definitely. a spiritual tradition, which was also, you know, also tapped into by the Buddha and by many other sages around that time and and i suppose another thing is that this spiritual tradition this indian spiritual tradition was very um old it was very old even when patanjali was writing this or composing this probably 40 uh, 1600 years ago 2000 years ago this tradition had already been going on in some form for 1500 years or so so it's a very very old tradition and it's a kind of an oral tradition i don't think it would be fair to say it's just one tradition because obviously there would be many streams of thought but potentially was obviously au fait with the broad gist of this tradition and was able to condense a very coherent teaching out of it and that's been the basis of how we've come to engage with this text well, it also makes me think, too, and it's kind of humbling where when you think of life 
you know, 1600, 2500 years, you know, thousands of years ago, you know, you tend to think of very primitive people, you know, that these people weren't thinking the deep thoughts that are are in the Yoga Sutra. I mean, it's pretty amazing. You know, they're talking about ego and sense of self and awareness. Uh, it, it's uh, yeah, just incredible. I, I, mean, I, so, I think it's I think it's surprising in many respects. I mean, a lot of people think that are oh, surprised that um, these texts seem to have kind of insights that have been recognized in modern psychology, for example. But in a sense, modern psychology isn't very old. Modern medicine's not very old. <laughs> and, and you have this tradition of um, this spiritual tradition, this tradition of meditation in India, which is thousands of years old. And given the amount of time and energy that so many people in India put into this inquiry, in a sense, I suppose it's not surprising that they, they come up with such great insights. You know, by comparison, we're quite new on the block in the West. You know, I, I think often, um, yeah, when you think of it like that, in a sense, it's not surprising that they came up with great insights because they put so much energy into it. And the fundamental right, like human condition, the fundamental human condition hasn't really changed that much. I think we all get kind of tripped up um, by neg what we could call negative thinking or unhelpful thoughts. And one of the big things about Patanjali is that he's giving us a methodology which helps us to ease our way out of getting too glued to habitual and negative thoughts, which then block our understanding. It's quite similar to some contemporary psychological um, therapeutic um, approaches. Um, making this distinction between what we think and our, 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 and our identity is fundamental to the Yoga Sutra. And obviously that, the sorts of problems that arose because of that confusion were around then just as they are around now. Right. It's so incredible to think that even back then, you know, they were identifying a lot of the, the things that are holding us back today. So we haven't learned much, I guess, <laughs> in, the, <laughs> in the 2000 years. You know, we still have a way to go. Now, we're going to take a short break uh, just for a minute or two, and then we'll come back and talk some more. I still have a lot of questions for you guys. So I'm so glad that you can stick around. I'm Diane Ray. You're listening to Be Present on UnityOnlineRadio.org, talking to Ranju Roy and David Charlton about their fascinating book, Embodying the Yoga Sutras. And yoga lovers, stick around. We'll be back in just a minute. Hi, I'm Reverend Linda Martella Witset with Silent Unity reminding you that we are here for you during the holidays to support you with affirmative prayer and inspiration. From all of us at Silent Unity, we wish you a beautiful and blessed holiday season. Welcome back to Be Present, the Diane Ray Show. Thanks for joining me after the break. I'm Diane Ray, talking with Ranji Roy and David Charlton, the authors of Embodying the Yoga Sutras, and if you're a yoga fan, a practitioner, maybe you're just thinking of getting into yoga, we would love to hear from you. If you have a question, 816-251-3555. I always welcome people to join the show and, and join the conversation. 
So I wanted to ask you guys, you know, in many of the yoga classes that I've taken, the teacher explained that the word yoga means union. So I always just kind of accepted that. And then as I was reading the book, I really liked your explanation that the union I was thinking of was kind of misleading and that the idea isn't really to join or enmesh, you know, with something, but like to yoke together so that you're still, you're still your own, your own separate person. You know, the two things remain separate. And that, that struck me really as really interesting when I first started reading the book that I was kind of missing the point of, of yoga from the very beginning. I mean, do you think a lot of people don't, don't even think of it like, well, like that? They just think so of it as union? Yeah, 99%, I would have said. I think it's very common for people to um, understand it in that way. Um, and, you know, it has been used in that context. I mean, I think one of the things about the word yoga is it's been used in so many different ways over its long history. And so um, union, in the sense that you've described it, is one of those contexts, but it's by f it's certainly not the most common, and it's certainly not really the 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 context of the Yoga Sutra, and it's not really consistent with the definitions in the Yoga Sutra. So uh, you're right. That's one of the things that we've really tried to do in the book is to is present the word yoga in a in a in a different way. And I think it's a good example of how we would use the this concept of roots, the roots of words, because the root of the word yoga, um, it, well, we use two roots. One is yuj, which links to the English word yoking or yoke, whereby two things come into relationship with one another. And we use the analogy of um, two oxen or um, two oxen being yoked together in order to pull a plow or something so so there's this idea of a, a yoking which enables something to happen but there's another root also which is used in the yoga sutra which is yuja which is meditation yoga is meditation so in fact both of those meanings are um well implicitly used in the yoga sutra that's it means both um bringing into relationship in order for something to happen and also simply meditation. Well, I'm glad you brought up meditation because uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about that too, you know, because I think a lot of people come to yoga first for the physical practice, but then you say in the beginning of the book that we have to appreciate that stillness is part of the practice. And, and that's really important, right? To cultivate stillness. And we would do that through meditation. Uh, we would, but we'd also do it through the posture practice. I mean, certainly in the way that we understand it, um, all, pretty much all of the principles that apply in the Yoga Sutras to meditation can also be brought into the other practices. For example, the practice of postures, the asanas, and um, even uh, seated breathing. So um, for us, really, the way that you work with the asanas and the way that you approach them the way that you start, the steps that you take in, in, in doing a particular posture and the way that you complete are all very important in creating the overall feel for the practice. And I think one of the fundamental ideas that we really wanted to emphasize from the, the word go is the ability to literally be quite still mm -hmm. is a really important part of the practice because 
that kind of follows into the other practices of seated breathing and meditation. So it's good to start with that and to cultivate that idea even within your posture practice. So we, we kind of point out that being still in between postures at the transition points in the practice, for example, is actually part of the practice. And I think people often don't know that. I mean, you kind of have to have to say that because basically being physically still is not something that we're terribly used to. We have to kind of work at it somewhat ironically. Mm. And the words, right, that's the so words, true. The, the, the Sanskrit words that links to this, or one of the Sanskrit words that links to this is the word nirodha. Uh, Patanjali defines the whole of the yoga project in the second sutra of the book as chitta vritti nirodha, which means that um, there is this nirodha of the chitta vritti, the chitta vritti as the activities of the mind. And the word nirodha we can think of as both being the process of stilling and the state of stillness, if you like. So it has two two aspects. One is a process of moving towards, and the other is the state of stillness. And it's very difficult to bring the mind to a state of stillness, if you like. Um, so instead of thinking of directly working on the mind, there's a kind of a, a sequence whereby we bring the body to stillness first, or we stop excess movement in the body and th and then we bring the breath to a state of well i would say stillness i would i would say one of the ways of bringing the breath to a state of stillness is exploring the periods where there's no inhalation and where there's no exhalation the quiet between inhaling and the quiet between exhaling so there's no there's no movement of the breath and we call that, the first one is called Kaya Nirodha, which is the stillness of the body, the cultivation of um, the discipline to not move, and also the stillness of the breath, cultivating periods of silence in the breath. And the cultivation of both the stillness of the body and the stillness of the breath is done, ironically, through moving the body and moving the breath. So what we do is to work dynamically with postures in order to achieve this state of stillness. And we work with lengthening the inhalation and the exhalation in order to achieve stillness between the breath. And from the movement, from the nirodha of the body to the nirodha of the, to, of the breath arises a kind of a nirodha of the mind. The mind begins to reduce its agit agitation and becomes much quieter. And it's really incredible how those both work together, both, you know, the physical practice, the stillness in between the breathing, you know, after a great yoga practice, my mind is just so calm and, and focused. Mm. And it just feels amazing. And unfortunately, it doesn't last as, as long as I would like it to. Uh, <laughs> after You know, no. I'd love to be in that Jesus. space Rossi, all the that. time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that would be that would be incredible. But in, in, in the book, you go into great detail into the breath and, and which is the pranayama and how it's all connected. And it's it's funny, as I was reading it, I was you re, you explain how it's all designed in such an amazing exact way. Like I tried to do a forward bend and inhale and you, and you can't. Right. Horrible, right. <laughs> it's it's, it's horrible. not easy. <laughs> So it wasn't meant to 
to be done that way, but the way everything connects is is so incredible. And you you go into into really great explanation of that in the book, you know, with the breath, the asanas, and how they all work together. So that that's amazing. And that's what you teach in all your classes. Yeah, I, I mean, I think one of the things that really appealed to, to me about this particular approach to yoga was the uh, the way everything seemed to join up, the way um, there was a kind of logical structure to the whole practice. And pretty much I could always ask the why question, uh, you know, why do we do it in this way? Why Why is it like this? And I get a sort of sensible answer. And certainly... If, for me you know I came from a sort of technical background and that really appealed to me actually it all kind of mm. seemed to join up in a very coherent manner it's incredible and and then again I keep thinking how did they figure this out you know 2500 <laughs> years ago this just doesn't seem possible you know but getting to that point and then also they you go into a little bit more I guess you would say the esoteric um, you know, part of the practice in that space, when we get to that point, is where we can really meet our true self, which you call pure awareness. But that's not our mind, right? Our our mind is is something else. How, how would you explain that? Well, I think that is actually one of the, the biggest um, gifts, if you like, that uh, the philosophy of yoga has to give us is this separation between what it considers to be our true selves and our minds it's not saying that our minds aren't important but i think what it is really pointing out to us is that we are not necessarily slaves to our minds i think often people take for granted that um whatever they think and they feel in a sense that is who they are but actually according to yoga a lot of the thinking and thought processes that we that we live by and indeed suffer by are kind of just simply conditioning that we've received and in some ways that we can learn to both change those patterns we can take some distance from those patterns uh, we are more than simply our minds and um, i think that's a really really powerful message that uh, the yoga sutra delivers it really is. And the other one that I thought was was really powerful was that, you know, as as spirit, our spirit is unchanging. You know, people are always trying to say, well, I want to get more spiritual and I'm, I'm trying to do this, you know, to have feel better spiritually. But but that sure. is an unchanging thing. I, I never thought of it that way. Yeah, there's a kind of a paradox here, isn't there? The, the, the idea of um, developing spiritually or whatever uh, the paradox is that, according to these teachings, and, and I think it takes a bit of getting your head around this, is that you, uh, there is no such thing as spiritual development. There's there's no need for spiritual development because the spirit is absolutely fine as it is. All of the whole arena of work, the whole arena of development, um, and the whole arena of where we need to practice is in the realm of what is changeable. Spirit is unchanging. What is changeable is our bodies, our minds, our environments, uh, you know, what we put into our bodies, what we take out of our bodies, etc. All of that stuff, our thinking, is the world of what Patanjali calls Prakriti. And Prakriti is the world of phenomena. Anything that you can 
describe is in the world of Prakriti. And so the world of Prakriti includes our thoughts as well as our bodies, as well as the external world. All of that is the material which is there to work with. And basically, uh, I understand this to mean that in a state of, in, in the normal state of confusion, Prakriti is dense and our minds are dense. And because of that density, we don't see the world very clearly. We see the world through a kind of a, a, a lens of outmoded ideas and um, confusions. So the work of yoga is to clean up the lens through which we perceive the world. And that lens basically is our mind, our senses, our bodies. And so that we have a, a, a more spacious and clearer view of the world. But the witness which is viewing through this lens doesn't change. Whether, it's dark, whether the lens is dark or whether the lens is clear, the witness doesn't change. What changes is the what we call the prakriti. Now, the experience of suffering and the experience of pain and the indeed the experience of joy is all within the realm of prakriti. So we do suffer in our minds. There is suffering in the minds. But according to these teachings, and I, and I, I think it's kind of hard to get your head around, but the, the spirit itself, the purusha, which is the, the pure awareness, witnesses the suffering happen. does that make sense <laughs> oh absolutely it it makes me think of i'm sure you've heard of ram das right i'm sure you've probably of read course, of course ram yeah, das sure. teachings you know and he talks about that to to be the witness is you know to sure. kind of stand back and, and look at it and I, I loved how you addressed it in the book and also you know remembering that what's causing our suffering is looking through the lens of our past actions and our emotions and all of those, all of that extra garbage that, that we bring with us, you know, and, and the more that we, we can read these sutras and, and do yoga practice and, and learn about that, then we can create the space to remove those things, right? That that's causing our suffering related to our, our past actions and emotions. But yeah. it is, it, it's interesting, yeah. right? Wrap your head, wrapping your head around it. <laughs> My head was <laughs> kind of popping off as I was reading the book. <laughs> and I wanted to say another <laughs> thing about a couple of things, just to link back to some of the things that we've already talked about. We, you, you were talking about the Ashtanga practice to, that you've been involved with over the last 20 years or so. And I wanted to say that this concept of Ashtanga is actually from the Yoga Sutra originally. And it's the eight limbs of yoga. And, and they're presented very clearly in the Yoga Sutra. And this, the eight limbs are to do with different arenas of activity where we have the potential to get very confused. So there's the arena of our relationships with other people. And this is the first limb of the eight limbs, potentially presents some practices, which are basically practices to help um, clean up our relationships, to help us live simpler relationships. The second one is um, our relationships with our own habits. You know, we can have habits which support us and habits which bring us down and add confusion. The third, the third limb is our posture. The fourth limb is our breath. The fifth limb is linked to our senses, 
and then the sixth, seventh, and eighth limbs are all linked to meditative states. And this is links to something that David was saying: was that the yoga project is so systematic and so um, coherent. It takes in both the macro and the micro. It takes the outer and the takes our relationships with the people as well as our deepest relationship with ourselves. So it's very well thought out, potentially thought out his system um, in a very coherent way in many, many different It is. It's very well thought out. You, you just dropped a, a little bit, but I did hear I did hear the last part of of what you were talking Sorry. about. And, oh, that's okay. And David, you're still there, right? I am. Yes. Oh, very good. Okay. Yeah, you could you could jump in if if we lose Ranju. Oh, okay. I hope oh, I don't well, lose I'll you guys. We have we have just a few a few more minutes, um, so we'll we'll hang in. Uh, hopefully, you guys won't drop off. But you know, it's interesting what you're talking about because that chapter. What really was kind of blowing my mind, um, the chapter on living with others, you know, just what we're talking about, the uh, eight limbs of yoga that Patanjali presents, and just kind of really simple, simple things that we can apply to our life. You know, we try to cultivate these things in our relationships. You know, there's there's five that you go over, the five yamas, the first of the eight limbs. Um, you know, ahimsa being nonviolence. You hear about that that one a lot. I see that popping up in different articles and, and things like that. But that, that seems like an obvious thing, right? You know, non-harming other living beings, kind of the golden rule that applies to, to all traditions, all religious traditions. Yeah, I mean, I think and there the, are some, um, you know, some very obvious things that are included, which are, are common pretty much across the board. Um, but I think uh, one of the things that the, the the yoga tradition has done is to incorporate these into um, a framework of it's not just about our relationships with others, but it also includes relationship with ourselves. This is the the area of niyama, and that actually the the basic take on on this is that these are good things to cultivate and adopt because actually they're very practical ways that simplify your life that actually these things will actually help to reduce the um our experiences of suffering and the complications in our life so i think it's very practical they're very practical in the way that they're presented and understood and that it's not so much as you you should do this to be um you know, to be to be good, as it were, or to fit a particular religious um, injunction. It's it's because this is the way to live most skillfully. This is the way to uh, relate to the world in the most wholesome way, and it's also the way to uh, reduce your own experience of suffering. To keep things as straightforward as possible. So I think they're presented very cleverly, actually. And they need to be unpicked, and certainly in the way we've tried to approach the yama niyama, um, we've had some help from certainly one of our teachers in particular, who was, I think, a genius, a, a man called Peter Hersnack, who was a genius at reformulating, in a sense, the language of these. And I, I think, you know, he presented, for example, nonviolence. He expanded into the idea of creating a space for another to be as they are. 
Well, once you start to look at it in that way, it takes nonviolence into a whole different arena. It takes it into, um, for, for me at least, it kind of makes so much more sense and it expands its scope uh, so much more. It was interesting also to me how these uh, yamas that Patanjali presented, just the, the correlation between those and the Ten Commandments. I mean, these are ways that that we should be living, you know, truthfulness, non-stealing. Uh, it's it, it's just so fascinating. So since you've been working with this material, I mean, how has your your own personal practice, you know, changed and morphed and grown over the years? Well, I think I think I can certainly say that what I'm doing now is, and the way that I approach the practice is radically different to what I did uh, 25 years ago. I, I mean, I mm. I think it has continually um, evolved and adapted, and I, and I I think in a healthy way. I think it's really important that one's practice does um, develop and evolve and is appropriate to the life you're living, the the age that you are, the circumstances in which you're living. I think we're both just two regular guys, really. I, I wouldn't like to claim that <laughs> I've got everything sorted out. But I, I certainly do believe that um, yoga has profoundly helped me to get this far. And, mm. um, and mm. yeah, I mean, I think that I think that's 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 all I could say on that, really. I, I think it's, mm. it's been an invaluable support in my life. Um, Definitely. Would you would you agree, Ranju, that you, that it's really I can, changed and I, I, I completely, changed your life? I completely agree that. I, I mean, I, I don't know. I can't speak for Dave, but you know, I think the reason why I took up yoga was for stability. I think I'm quite an excitable and potentially anxious person at times, and I think what yoga has done is to really given me uh, a, a very steady support over the years, which has deepened my own ability to remain still, to remain, become non-reactive, um, to, to get periods of spaciousness. Um, and, and I think the important thing is that it is a practice and I think we continue to practice. I know that if I don't practice yoga for a few days, I can feel my levels of um, what you could call instability coming back up again and I know that when I practice yoga it grounds me it helps me to see more clearly it probably makes me an easier person to live with all around so it's it certainly makes it easier for me to live with me so I think yoga has been <laughs> a, a really really helpful rock which has which has supported my life yeah I think it's definitely people, been that for me it's been that with, yeah, oh, go ahead. Sure. yeah. And I think many people who meet us, they, they often say things like, you must be so relaxed and so calm because <laughs> you're a yoga teacher. And and actually, I, I, I would agree with Ranji that actually, I, I think I also can have similar tendencies to, to get anxious and, 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 what, and what have you. But what yoga has given me is a, is a kind of whole toolkit that I can bring to bear and it's given me some very practical ways to to deal with situations that are difficult or when, when I'm feeling particularly stressed or anxious or, or whatever. I've got some resources that 
that can allow me to help create some more stability. I think yoga fundamentally is about stability. I don't know that that's also always appreciated, but um, the Yoga Sutra is full of words that suggest stability. And um, it's one of the enduring themes, a kind of resilience. I think resilience these days yeah. is quite a popular word uh, to talk about psychological resilience. And really, I think this is the very practical benefit that yoga can give us. Well, I would agree 100%. I mean, it's given me a, a lot more resilience and support. I mean, in in my radio life, you know, it's it can be very... Uh, you know, not, not stable. <laughs> like I, one year I had to move, I think three times, I moved three times in two years, like every move, I would always look for a yoga class. Like that was the first mm -hmm. thing that I would look mm -hmm. for. And it always brought yeah. support and stability to my life. And your book has mm -hmm. been such a, a gift as well. It really has kind of inspired me to, you know, look at my own practice a little bit differently. And I was feeling guilty. Oh, I haven't practiced in a few weeks, you know, uh, I'm, mm. I'm a horrible person, but now I don't feel that way. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I appreciate that, that. You know, I'll be able to go go back on my mat with a, a much a much better you know outlook on things. And thank I you so much, you guys. Are yeah, <laughs> our our time is just running out, but you guys have been amazing. And I want people to check this book out, Embodying the Yoga Sutra, by Ranju Roy and David Charlton, and visit you online at Sadhana Yoga Training dot com and uh check out you guys if if they're in the uk maybe they can take a class with you or or something like that but i wish you so much success with the book thank you very much dan it's been a real pleasure talking to you yeah, thanks. yeah great okay thank you for listening this is unity online radio the voice of an awakening world Life is hard, and sometimes you need a little help and guidance. I'm Laura West, host of a Guided Life podcast, and I believe that help is all around us. We just have to ask for it. The universe has a way of guiding us forward with the help of our past loved ones, angels, spirit guides, and ascended masters. On the podcast, I love to explore these ideas with incredible guests and let people know that they are never alone. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you can join me on this journey. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm network and wherever you get your podcasts.